Section 16 of A Short History of France by Mary Duclos. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Part 3, Chapter 1, The Renaissance, Part 2. Louis left behind him two children, a daughter of twenty-one, a son of thirteen. He had a great opinion of his girl and left her regent of France during the minority of her brother. Anne of Beaujeu was a type of French woman who has been frequent in every age, managing, masterful, economical, prudent, devoted. She married her little brother to the heiress of Brittany in the teeth of the bride's opposition and so as a peasant farmer adds field to field and vineyard to vineyard the father and daughter between them compacted the kingdom of france the son was of a different type men called him charles the affable he was the harum-scarum young frenchman we so often meet ugly expressive pleasant friendly brave and eager for romance he had lived all his life far from his father's court reading the rosier de guerre and countless romances of chivalry in his castle of amboise of all his father's inheritance that which appealed the most to this vivacious yet dreamy unpractical young man was just that one item by which the prudent louis set no store the claims of the house of anjou to the crown of naples in fourteen ninety four the king four and twenty years of age crossed the Alps in a tumultuous rush, dragging over the mountains with him forty of those new cannon, which were as strange and terrifying to the Italy of his times as the German zeppelins or the English tanks are to our own. What a surprise to the transalpine princes, accustomed to the leisurely methodical battles of their condottieri, as regular and almost as harmless as a game of chess, what a terrible revelation was this mad destructive inrush of the french they called charles the affable the scourge of heaven the invasion of italy appeared even to contemporaries a miracle the young king ill-advised without generals without money leading the impromptu army of a moment's whim traversed hostile italy as glorious as charlemagne a horde of young barbarians they must have seemed. We know how the French soldiers shied stones at Leonardo's statue of Duke Sforza at Milan, and broke the priceless masterpiece to bits. But if they were rough and rude, if the Italian tyrants who so long had coquetted with France deplored their advent, the common people everywhere welcomed the army and cried, Benedictus qui venit in nomine domini. The women brought their jewels to pay the troops. The men threw open the gates of the cities. Every difficulty was overridden, for, says Comines, touched with the grave exaltation of the hour, God himself was our leader. Dieu monstrui conduire l'entreprise. At our first arrival, he goes on, the people honoured us as saints, supposing all faith and virtue to be in us, but this opinion endured not long for there reigned a great wickedness in the beautiful cities of italy and the people took the french for an army of deliverers let us take not only the testimony of the french but out of a cloud of witnesses the words of marin sanudo the venetian secretary 
there is no city in italy says he not rome or naples not milan florence bologna or ferrara nay not my own venice even that is holier than the cities of the plain but how beautiful were sodom and gomorrah what angels painted in the chapels of florence where savonarola in the pulpit welcomed with his fiery eloquence the coming of the french and milan with the frescoes of leonardo fresh upon the wall and ariosto at ferrara and venice where the girl madonnas of john bellini were not yet all begun and the pope at rome was borgia and the preacher at florence was savonarola among all this strange extravagance of beauty vice and virtue the king of france moved like a quaint elfin child a quite uninstructed person wrote the milanese corio though none the less able to address his soldiery in such telling terms that they rushed upon the enemy crying alive or dead and the young french lords innumerable who accompanied him and all their soldiery made a wonderful progress to naples where charles was crowned king of naples emperor of the east and king of jerusalem the ugly bright-eyed youth projected a crusade but a rumour of an anti-gallic league of those very states which had welcomed the french so fervently sent charles and his army back across the alps that was the first of several french invasions of italy a few years later charles was to die of an accident at tennis his cousin and successor louis the twelfth remembered his grandmother valentina of milan and led another army into italy in pursuance of the french claim to milan and the same fantastic claims led his heir francis i more than once into lombardy where he scored a great victory in fifteen fifteen and ten years later was taken captive at pavia the reverses and the successes of france in italy were alike ephemeral what really mattered what really contributed to the growth of france was the impression of italy that the french brought away with them an immense enlargement of the moral and artistic faculties the one stimulated by the beauty and the science of italy the other shaken and awakened by the spectacle of a shocking example for the very same great lords who bought leonardo's pictures and ariosto's poems were poisoners employers of paid assassins adept in unnatural vices it was borne in upon honest france that there is something worth more than all that fairyland can show as rabelais wrote voicing the sense of his time in immortal words science sans conscience est la ruine de l'âme knowledge bereft of conscience is the ruin of the soul the thirty years war which france waged on italy did more for the mind of the nation than the hundred years war with england the english occupied france without modifying it the french kings brought back with them personalities of such genius that they grafted new conceptions on the stock of france when francis i invited to fontainebleau the master painter leonardo da vinci sculptor architect physicist engineer writer musician and when he turned his french manor into a wonderful italian palace with andrea del sarto benvenuto cellini primaticcio for its decorators when he founded the college of france and welcomed there the humanists and scholars 
left shelterless by the fall of the Republic of Florence, when he married his son to the Pope's niece, Catherine de' Medici, the Florentine, when French authors translated Petrarch, Tasso, Boccaccio, Machiavelli, the gods of the Italianate court, the invasion of France by Italian culture became complete. Those old, vain raids on Milan had been, after all, more important than many a successful war, and in a mood of fancy we might suppose that the snake uncoiled upon the shield of the Visconti had renewed the temptation of the primal serpent. France, at its bidding, like Adam, had eaten of the fruit of the tree. And as in the earlier Renaissance, this invasion of foreign germs produced a marvellous blossoming of native genius. This is not the place to write of the French Renaissance, but I must at least, in passing by, salute two great names. Could one write of Elizabethan England and never mention Shakespeare? Rabelais' Life of Gargantua is an orgy of life, inexpressibly coarse and yet full of poetry, a foul and glorious paean in praise of the energy of nature. The French, who are so fine, so delicate and exquisite, are yet sometimes coarse with a surprising coarseness and unexpected filth that the English imagination boggles at. But Rabelais is their master in this line. Yet so great was his love of life, so deep and hearty his pagan philosophy, so ardent his wish to liberate the intelligence of man, to enfranchise his instincts and ensure his freedom and his happiness, and so contagious is his rollicking laugh, that as we shut up the book we murmur to ourselves, Whom have we here? Is it Falstaff, Caliban, or Prospero? Rabelais' story, like Cervantes' Don Quixote, was begun as a skit upon an old medieval novel. The story is nothing, the stuff of no importance. The priceless value of the work lies in its embroidery. All the rushing, gushing, incoherent welter of fun, philosophy, learning, wit, imagination, in a magical medley of words. The revolt of nature against grace, the claims of the body as opposed to the soul, the belief in a beauty and a harmony imminent in all the natural courses of life, the hatred of what he calls antiphysie and what we perhaps might call metaphysics, have never been expressed with a more unconquerable conviction. Rabelais was a medical student for years before he became curé of Meudon, and his genius keeps the marks of the sawbones in the apothecary. The discursiveness, the skepticism, the egotism of Rabelais are present in the other great name of his age, Michel de Montaigne, who, feeling that he had so much to say about life and things, very wisely gave up any attempt to tell a story, and merely gave us his views and meditations, inventing a new form, the essay. Montaigne was a man of free and meditative mind, as little trammelled by custom and superstition as Rabelais himself. Like Rabelais, something of an anarchist, much of an Epicurean. But unlike Rabelais, he finds something superior to the beauty and harmony of nature, and that is, the mastery a man may gain over his own mind and over circumstance and fate. In fact, Montaigne, the soft and slack Montaigne, as Pascal calls him, the loose and lax Montaigne, as we are all inclined to think, 
was in his deepest heart a stoic it is i think this mingling of free philosophy and natural grace with something firm and stoical at bottom which makes him so characteristically french and to my humble thinking one of the most delightful authors in the world but montaigne has always been beloved in england owing perhaps to the fact as i think sir sidney lee was the first to point out that lord bacon's elder brother settled at bordeaux was an intimate friend of the french philosopher his works passed early to our english thinkers hands and montaigne's essays gave the pattern to bacon's essays the marvellous translation of john florio soon rendered the frenchman almost as popular in england as at home there can be little doubt that shakespeare studied him and from that day to this it is doubtful if any foreign author has had in our studies and among the meditative solitary sort a more appreciative public than montaigne the character of the philosopher is akin to our phlegmatic liberal english temper he declared himself our cousin and inclined to think that the original aquiems of montaigne were immigrants to bordeaux from our isles End of section sixteen